Welcome back to another episode of Podcasting is Praxis. This week it's a Euro takeover. We have two Europeans, including myself. Hi, I'm Rob. Um, and this time I'm joined by my fellow countryman, Marin. Hello. And I'm joined by master journalist um, and musician, Elijah. Hi, uh, how's it going? <laughs> Uh, and today is, a, is indeed a very special episode. We're going to take a break from uh, the usual Corona bits, though we'll come back on that, I think, towards the end. And we're going to have a talk about the euro, the euro currency, and why it is essentially uh, a bad, a, a, a good idea in theory and a bad idea in, in, in practice, I think, is a, is a good summary. Would you agree, Marit? Uh, yeah, but that kind of goes for a lot of... The European Union, though, I think. <laughs> okay, well, yes. that's it. Episode over. That's it. We got it. All right. <laughs> Briefest one we've ever done. Good night, everybody. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's been... Uh, thank you for your insight. It's been great. <laughs> okay. So, um, what's a euro? That's a pretty philosophical question. <laughs> Can I buy burst with it? Uh... uh or waffles yeah yes yeah yeah it is the euro is the um is not oh god now we have to get into the difference between the eurozone and the european union and europe but um the euro is the official uh, coin and monetary unit of the eurozone which is most countries in the european union but not by long stretch all of them um, and it is a unit of exchange with which you can buy uh, delicious hamburgers, waffles, and uh, Spanish apartments. Well, we do that now, but originally you couldn't, because the euro existed virtually long before it existed physically, which is our thing. Yeah. So I hope that satisfies. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? It was was it bit euro? Um. It existed yeah. virtually. I think it, it was, was like, like a, a. I think it was. Oof, this was a while ago. I think it was like a unit of exchange between European it, banks. It, yeah, originally, I mean, it, it, this is all. It was a unit of exchange, essentially, as you say, to, to sort of facilitate money being flashed between European banks. And then, uh, when the decision was made that we were going to. Um, do a monetary like a, a common currency between all these countries um it was then also called an ecu um the yeah. european currency unit which is very sexy um and then that became that was sort of a forerunner of the uh of, of the actual printed currency that people would use for uh and banks would use for um 
transfers between countries and that kind of stuff, but that was mainly on the business side. Yeah, that's what they also used to eventually uh, decide the exchange values for the whatever currency your country had prior to the euro and, and the euro. Sorry, this is already terrible. <laughs> this is already <laughs> there is no such thing as a as a euro episode. Like we did one before this as well uh, about the EU as a sort of general concept. Um, and there is no way to talk about this stuff without running into like hideous technological weeds. Um, you need to ask simpler questions, Elijah. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, I was so if we can lay out just the organizations at play here. Right, so we have the EU, that's the one that everyone knows about, which is a political and economic union, but, yep. not, but not all countries in the EU are part of the currency. Yes, exactly. Right. Okay, so, uh, so yeah, and the again, UK... There, there's, like, there's three statuses, right? So you can, um, if you were a member of the European Union at the time that the euro uh, like was decided on, you could choose whether you wanted to join or not. Right. And then if you choose you want to be in, then you are now a Euro member, like a, a Eurozone member country. And if you chose not to be in, then that's it. You don't you don't have the Euro. You could always choose to join it again later, but you don't have to. And that's the status of, say, the UK and even uh, Denmark, who I think decided initially to get in, but then had a referendum on it. And they were like, eh, actually, no second thought, we're, we're not going to be doing this. And um, then there are countries that joined the European Union after the euro was introduced, and they have to work towards implementing the euro. So, like, they're they're supposed to be uh, implementing the euro at some point. So, as far as choose. as far as I'm aware, this is this can be taken in a more serious or in a more tokenistic way, like the the new member is expected to make a commitment or a promise to joining the euro at some point down the line but that requires a couple of steps that are yeah. not necessarily enforceable so if a new country um wanted to access the eu they they would be able to do it without having to join the euro at all and this is pretty laid out there. exactly yeah. okay yeah i mean they all make like in the, they, they, they will always make like a vague political statement of saying we're joining the european union now and then one day you know in the far distant glorious future we will join the euro as well but like that's a lot of just political talk um you know that's like um during the brexit campaign when uh the brexiteers were always talking about how uh, you know, Turkey was going to join the EU and there were going to be 5 million Turks coming to live specifically in your apartment. Mm -hmm. um, th 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 that, that was essentially like because the both the EU and Turkey maintain the sort of weird fiction that, yes, we're really working very hard towards the Turkey joining the European Union. Yeah, this has been going you know, on, it's that kind of stuff. This has been going on forever, though, because I remember when I, was in, when I was in high school in geography class, so this must have been like 16 years ago, we were already having discussions about like you know Turkey might want to join. What does that mean for the European Union? Should Turkey be allowed to join? Yeah, Which yeah. It's yeah. like intense discussion in the class with uh, you know people that are now uh, right wing idiots arguing <laughs> yeah. that, that they should never be allowed to join because they're they're not even geographically part of Europe, which is an interesting statement to make in a, in a geography class. Uh, <laughs> right, but so I mean, this has been going on forever, and there's no, yeah, you know, there's no, uh, there's no progress yeah. on that. 
But basically, like the big thing is if you want to actually like once you're in the European Union and you want to join the euro and like you're actually real and serious about it, um, roughly speaking, you have to adhere to what is called the conditions of what's called the Stability and Growth Pact. And like that thing is going to come back when we yeah. start talking about Greece and stuff. So that was my next um, question, because if you even if you make the commitment and then you actually do want to join the euro as a new EU member, there's a set of conditions that, that have to be met, which is not necessarily something that a new EU country would meet. So it's not no, even, no, 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 it's not even no. something that can be forced upon you. It's, it can actually be difficult to attain. Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think the Baltic states are good examples of countries that really wanted to join the euro and have now, uh, have they all joined? The, I think Latvia at least has joined the euro, for example. And they, yeah. they made a big effort in getting that done, and there's some indication that they also uh, cooked some books to make that happen. Which is another <laughs> sort of interesting thing that keeps happening for some reason. I don't, I don't know why, but uh, yeah, yeah. So essentially, like the the big three rules are. Um, and they, they have to be valid, I think, over a period of two or three years. So, like, you can't just hit a one-off. Like, you have to be consistently meeting no more than 3% of a budget deficit, a maximum of 60% jet debt to GDP, which, you know, especially right now, who doesn't have 60% debt to GDP? That's super high. Um, and your interest rates have to sort of match EU averages over time. Um, so from its like from its construction, this is already you know this is like George Osborne's wet dream, like you know the the low deficits, low debt to GDP ratios, um, yeah. and and consistent interest rates. Like it's an extremely neoliberal, austere uh, program from the jump. Like these conditions are are very hard to to meet. Um, and and what happened, of course, is that this is also a political project. So. When the initial countries got together, there was a decision about whether or not um, Sp Spain and Italy and Greece in particular should be let in because they were nowhere near those conditions. But they were also very big European countries with a long history, especially. I mean, the, the argument for Greece essentially was, well, it's the birthplace of democracy and, you know, the philosophical, philosophical background and blah, blah, blah. And the Greeks have to be in uh, also for sort of strategic reasons so while the greeks were actively conniving with uh goldman sachs to hide the size of their deficits um <laughs> we also let them do that yes yeah. not say the greeks though and say the the greek government at the time sorry yeah. yeah yeah no that's that's very fair no you're completely right um so there's a set of economic conditions to be met to join the euro that would overall result in pretty negative damaging domestic economic policies right so it's it's it, it, this deficit hawk type of attitude and hyper austerity um but because there's no requirement like a real one to join the euro if you want to be an eu country member is there a way that um is there a different mechanism, like a political one or a or a sort of geodiplomatic one, um, whereby new EU member countries have pre pressure put onto them to actually meet these requirements? Because it seems to me that a kind of Washingtonian consensus economic doctrine doesn't really work if if you're not if you don't have a mechanism to leverage people into adopting it. Well, the the main point of level, like, first of all, once you're in the EU, there's actually no mechanism to kick you out. And uh, while yeah. there are some mechanisms to like censor, censure uh, a member or take away, you know, they can, they can take away your voting rights. They can, 
make it so that you still have to pay into all the various programs, but you don't, you stop receiving monies, right? This is all very difficult to actually uh, attain in practice, which we're seeing with all the political, uh, like all the judges being sidelined and all this stuff in, in Hungary and Poland. Uh, exactly. Like for where, example, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, for example, in Hungary, a couple, I think two weeks ago now, uh, because of the corona crisis, like uh, Orban, who is a fucking right-wing lunatic, um, literally the the parliament, which is governed by his power and by actual uh, neo-fascists, um, gave him, like, he can rule by decree now. Yeah, like, that is literally not a democracy anymore. Yeah, and the best thing, the EU... Yeah, and the e all the EU can manage essentially is to send a, a grumpy letter. Well, I have to, like, von der Leyen did... Uh I think she did more than I expected, although I expected very little of her. <laughs> so, yeah. to, just to bring it back down to the sort of UK level of understanding, right? When when the when the Morning Star reading tanky guy online tells me that the EU is going to kick Portugal out because they keep doing socialisms, that's that's pretty untrue. They, they can't. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, in the end, it's a matter of power, right? And all the rules are the rules. Uh, all the rules are the rules until they're changed. <laughs> but uh, there's no current mechanism anywhere within any of the uh, treaty frameworks of the European Union to kick out a member state. And if there is one thing you need to know about the European Union is that it is legalistic, mm -hmm. like incredibly so. So if you wanted to, for example, um, do a little bit of uh, Keynesian economics in your own country, and do some spending projects, maybe buy up some some private infrastructure that was essential to, you know, running a country like maybe railroads or something, and you wanted to bypass the regulations on state aid, um, you could probably easily find a way to do that if you just um, have the right lawyers and you find well, the right loophole. Well, I think that's where you will run into what is in practice the actual enforcement mechanism of the EU, which they're not, you know, they're not going to use this for whenever you're dealing with, you know, political issues like judges and all this kind of inconvenient stuff. But as soon as you start uh, challenging the orthodoxy of neoliberalism, then um, they will make sure that you get cut out of everything that uh, could get you... Uh, uh, yeah, death, and death, then especially and all this sort of stuff, and they'll basically yeah. wreck your. And then economy. especially if you're if you're in the eurozone, um, they have, which is what the Greeks experienced. If you're in the eurozone, they have extremely powerful tools to actually like they can, the the eurozone and the ECB in particular has the power to just break your banking sector if they feel like it. Okay, well let's talk about yeah. that then. So what's the ECB? The European, All right. The uh, so bank. the ECB is the European Central Bank. Um, it sounds like a central bank, but it is actually not a central bank, which is, sounds really weird. But um, <laughs> um, essentially, it, it, it has most of the functions that you would expect a central bank to have. It, it uh, prints the currency. It maintains the volume of currency in circulation. It does all kinds of stuff uh, with banking regulation. So that's all the stuff you would expect. But what the European Central Bank is expressly forbidden from doing, which is what every other central bank in every other country uh, can do. And right this moment with the corona, it is doing, um, like the Americans and then also in, in the UK, um, is they are not actually allowed to uh, just print money. They're not just allowed to, to, to jack up the amount of money in, in circulation uh, because they have only one mandate and that is um, keeping inflation under control. And, under, and because under control means 
lower than 2%. Yeah. No matter what. So, so how do you do, so how do you do that? How you, how, how do you deal with, how do you intervene to artificially create a certain level of inflation without being able to affect the internal, like, market value of your currency if you can't print currency what do you do how do you devalue it do you have to buy other currencies do you have to sell your own currency to a different country what's the well this like? is this is where the weird thing comes in because like the the european central bank as i said like does the regulate does a lot of banking regulation and and keeps the amount of currency under control but what it does not do is um the ecb doesn't directly borrow like the fed gives mm -hmm. out treasuries for example or the the uk um central bank um does uh you know treasuries uh, guilt um there is no such thing there's no equivalent instrument for uh the eurozone so if spain wants money spain has to give out has to create state uh you know bonds denominated in euros um, that they have to pay back in euros, but they do that through their own central bank because the ECB is not allowed to do that, which is a, like, that sound, that is a bit technical, but that's a very important difference. That, so, which know. I think is also, I think the European Central Bank is the only central bank, in air quotes, in, 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 in the world that has basically uh, central banks below it that in some sense have more authority than it does like in, in certain specific aspects. So if if Spain, for example, uh, were to create a bond, it would rely on the domestic economic strength of Spain itself. It wouldn't be defined by a, an EU-wide or a Eurozone-wide no, level. Exactly. Okay. You, yeah, if, exactly. If you'd be buying that bond, you'd basically be investing in, in, in Spain, in the Spanish government, in the Spanish economy. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the risk you'd want the price to. Yeah. But essentially, like it would be, I don't know, weird analogy that doesn't quite work. But I think this is a reasonable way of expressing it. Is it's as if um, if the UK wanted to, I don't know, issue some debt to let's say nationalize the the railways, right? Um, and you would, so you would do a bond issue. You would say we have, you know, we need UK government needs, I don't know. 50 billion to buy up all the railways uh it would it would issue that bond but the way it would do it is it would do everything it's except itself except that the currency would be the u.s dollar okay so it would be like the uk government buys a bunch of dollars uh, and then says here's the dollars we're going to use it to buy the railways is is that it or I don't know. Maybe this analogy sucks, Aston. Maybe we have to cut, <laughs> to cut this know. bit. I'm not really. I can, really, I, mean, I can, you know, I can, I can deal with basic concepts, but I start glazing over. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit different from that because uh, obviously Spain does use the euro also internally, whereas the dollar would be completely foreign to the UK. But uh, yeah, it's it, yeah. So it's. We, the euro, okay, so the ECB is, 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 just to get back to sort of big terms, the EC is like the central bank, but it lacks some of the really important components of being a central bank. And the most important one, which is, again, the one that all um, central banks everywhere else in the world do have, which is what you saw a lot during the 2008 financial crisis and since, is what is known as the lender of last resort function. So... Mm -hmm. 
when the banks collapse, when the, the, the retail banks collapse, when the when the investment firms collapse, when Lehman Brothers goes down, you know, when all the currencies are tanking, what can happen and like what happens everywhere in the world except on the European level is that the, the British Central Bank and then the American uh, Federal uh, Reserve just steps in and says, we will print as much money as we need and we will put it through the system. You know, we will do quantitative, not quantitative, like we will just flush money into the system. Which and the ECB doing right cannot do that. Yeah. And that's like a, that is the, it, the, if you take away all the other stuff from like what a central bank does, the lender of last resort function is what it's called. And that's like the most critical thing that any bank can have. And the ECB doesn't have that. And, and the reason it doesn't isn't uh, a large part fear of inflation, right? Because the idea there is like, let's yeah. the United mm. States, for example, they've created in the last couple of weeks, uh, literally trillions and trillions of dollars that they've pumped straight into the stock market. Um, and, you know, clearly, if you're going to just create out of thin air trillions of extra uh, of your currency, then that must mean there's massive inflation everywhere, right? That's that's the the view that uh, is uh, at least very popular in, in Northern Europe, especially in Germany. Uh, it's also, you know, like, look at the United States right now. Where's the inflation? <laughs> yeah, this is after dumping, what, a, a trillion dollars a month? Yeah, and I, 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 yeah. I actually, like, I, this is one of Mark White's uh, big arguments, right? Like, there's no inflation anywhere. I, I actually think he's, I think he's wrong about that. I think I can name three places where you actually do find inflation, but I don't know if that's in the scope of what we're talking mm. about now. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's very interesting. But let's let's sort of get back to. All right, so we sort of define the ECB yeah. like then that the, the. All right, so you have Europe, you have the European Union, you have the Euro yeah. zone, which are like progressively smaller units, um, and then they have the ECB, and the, like that's like two of the big main players. Uh, the guy that you might like, and then there's the chairman of the ECB, which used to be an Italian guy called Mario Draghi, who's interesting in various ways. Um, and then now he stepped down, and now it's Christine Lagarde who used to run the IMF, IMF. Yeah. and now yeah, and now she's in charge of the eurozone. Yeah. Okay. So which, we, was, which was, by the way, just to get, I think this is what uh, Rob was uh, was uh, alluding to, right? Draghi was very interesting because he basically started saying things like, "I will do whatever is necessary." to save the euro or, or you know get us through this crisis or whatever and basically sticking a finger in the eye of the germans sometimes and, mm-hmm. then, they got, yeah. and then they got rid of him and they got uh, uh lagarde in and lagarde obviously uh comes from the imf where she was instrumental in pushing austerity upon many countries including greece so it was basically like ah now we finally get somebody in who's gonna you know stick to the script and yeah uh, yeah then then the whole covid crisis happened and uh yeah, I don't think okay, she can so, stick down the scripts anymore. Yeah, so well, this is going to be my we've we've talked about what the ECB can't do, um, which is the n- normal money printing and extra spending. So what they do instead is this bond issuing thing. Well, I mean, I think now you want to go to what they can do, right? Maybe we should take yeah. a step back and, and do, do like a short little history lesson. Talk about okay. where yeah, the hero came from. And, uh, yeah. So I think first, to, like where the hero came from, you have to first talk a little bit about where the EU came from. And uh, that starts all the way back in the 50s with the European community of uh, steel and coal. Or yeah, we did a history of the, we did a, a Europe episode where we talk more about this um, uh, 
but yeah, we can talk a little bit about it. But you can yeah, go back to um, very briefly because yeah, yeah. Right, right, go right for from it. that for that from that name, right? Community of Steel and Coal sounds like an economic union, yeah, uh, but it wasn't because the whole like this the explicitly stated a purpose of the project was to prevent war on the European continent. Um, by making it materially impossible. Basically, we were going to link uh, the economies of these first six member states, uh, which was uh, the Benelux countries and then uh, Western Germany, France, and Italy, where obviously the latter three were, were more important. Uh, and we're going to link their steel industries together in such a way that they cannot be disentangled. So it becomes materially impossible for these countries to go to war with one another. And... Um, that's sort of still a thing that's happening where, uh, yeah, we get, we, we get our economies so entangled with each other that it becomes uh, very, very difficult to disentangle them, as I'm sure uh, some people in the UK have uh, started to figure out. Uh, and that's by design. And that's a purely, that's a political goal, right? You want to prevent war. And uh, it has nothing to do with, with economics as such. Although I guess you can argue that, you know, not killing millions of each other and bombing each other's industry to rubble every couple of years is, is good for the economy as well. Um, but that's sort of a, um, there's a, there's a, I feel like there's always been two camps or at least have been two camps in the last decades within the European Union where some countries are very much in it for, for the economic aspect, right? They approach, uh, they approach everything from a what's in it for me perspective. And uh, the Dutch government is, I think, very much in that camp. And our biggest ally looking at it from that way was uh, the UK government. And that's something that's like explicitly stated by the Dutch government over and over and over again, that they are so unhappy about Brexit because we're losing our biggest ally in, uh, in pushing back the further integration of the European Union, whereas you know, the integration is, is the political aspect, which is what other countries want, countries mainly in the South. And... Um, a lot of the countries in the north, but also in the east, they're basically looking at it from the perspective of how can I uh, pay as little as possible while getting maximum benefit. Get as much stuff this. out of it yeah, as possible. Exactly. Yeah. And don't come to me, don't come talking to me about all this sentimental stuff, you know, sentimental stuff like uh, human rights and things like that, right? Which is, I think, a big sticking point in, uh, in the UK, but it's also something that Poland and Hungary do not want to be lectured about. And that's sort of a, um, a, big, like a big split that's been going on, well, like I said, for decades. Then yeah. we get... Uh, and I think, sort of, to, to just to break in for a second, the I think this is all, yeah, uh, the, sort of the best way to sort of, and, and, and that will help you sort of see the dynamics of the, the Euro, not, not just the Eurozone, but also Europe in general, is that France, broadly speaking, is more about the big social, political, uh, uh, philosophical project. And Germany is all about just the hard-nosed, I want stuff from it. And I want to use the the EU and the Eurozone uh, to become an exporting powerhouse. And it's all about the economics. And that sort of fundamental tension, that's sort of what drives the axis of Berlin and Paris. And that's the, the, the motor of the European Union, especially. And that's also the origin story of the Euro, where... Um German unification after the uh, the fall of the uh, Iron Curtain was something that uh, a lot of leaders of uh, Western European countries were uh, not so uh, not so happy about. Actually, no. Uh, France was, I think, the most vocal, but there was also definitely uh, politicians in the UK and and other nations basically looking at that. And you know, it's the same game they've been playing for 
well, especially Britain, right? It was basically British national policy for hundreds of years to make sure that no power in the European uh, continent proper could get so dominant as to challenge the UK, right? And the UK's alliances have always been such that they uh, will ally with whoever is in second place, basically. Um, so everybody basically saw it coming that if Germany unifies, they'll be they'll be bigger, they'll be more powerful economically than than anybody else. So they're and also this this you know this generation of politicians was either in the war or or right. just after war was you know kids during the war. So they really have very strong memories in a very negative sense about what it means to have a German hegemon on the continent. Right. So the French then said, okay, uh, we'll be, you know, we'll allow it, we'll allow the unification, but we have some conditions. And the, and the chief condition was we have to go to a common currency, where again, the idea is, you know, going all the way back to the 50s, we'll integrate to such an extent that there is no us and them anymore. There's no way you can, you know, our economies will be so entangled that you cannot disentangle them. And in a sense, you can think of uh, open warfare as like the most extreme form of disentangling your economy, right? And that this is not going to be possible. Uh, so that's where, where the euro came from. Yeah. And again, that has nothing to do with, uh, you know, a bunch of economists sitting down and thinking about, ooh, wouldn't it be economically beneficial to have a currency union? And if so, how should we properly design this? To achieve proper uh, yeah the goals that goals, we actually right? want that's not yeah. that's, that wasn't the consideration at all. Well, I mean, there were two sort of things underlying that. The uh, the, the first one was that the um, the French said, "Okay, you can do the, the the reunification and like you can do this as a whole thing," um, but you know there has to be the euro. Then the the Germans said, "Okay, we'll do the euro, but you have to let us write the rules." which was, of course, a very dumb mistake, but that's where we ended up. Um, uh, and then the second thing was that you have to put this in sort of the context of the the fall of the, the Iron Curtain and its reunification and it's sort of the early to mid 90s. And, you know, the sort of the, this is this is end of history time. You know, neoliberal capital has won forever and it can never fail again because we have, you know, arrived at the end of history. And this is now forever and it will you know the sun will shine forever and and the economic boom of the 90s is slowly gathering pace so everybody was sort of filled with an insane amount of optimism that this thing that they were building like they knew that there were big flaws in it that like it's really difficult to create a economic unit uh, unity without a political unity but they were like well everything's gonna be a roller coaster no not a roller coaster everything's gonna be great now um and if we just do the economic integration first through the eurozone then the political integration must follow because you can't have the one without the other and what we've seen in the last 10 years is or 20 years now is that you can have the one without the other and it's a constant hideous blood and i think actually we could have seen this for the last 30 years but i don't think anybody's paying attention because the first victim i think to this to this faulty logic is actually eastern germany Right, because what happened upon unification? Did Eastern Germany then get built up to the level of Western Germany, and like, oh, this great Western capitalism comes in, and the people are, are risen to this new level, like even within one country, which it now is? No, like still right now, if you look at healthcare outcomes, if you look at life expectancy, if you look at uh, 
uh, average wages. If you look at uh, like any metric right now, it is better to be in Western Germany than Eastern Germany. And that's why you're seeing also a massive rise of far right parties that are mostly being fueled in Eastern Germany. Right. And the, the reason for that is what happened was, uh, okay, unification takes place. Uh, they create an institution called the, the toy hunt. And what they basically said is, oh, you know, we've got this, uh, this big important, uh, this big important company. Uh, you know, we got Volkswagen, we got BMW, we got all these, these massive industrial uh, companies. Uh, we have uh, Coop from, from the steel, steel company. We've got, we've got Siemens. These are all incredibly important companies for, for Western Germany. These are all companies that uh, have good links and ties with the government. And uh, they don't really want competition from, uh, from an Eastern uh, competitor. You know, they don't want these factories that have been built in the East to potentially start undermining their, their position. So what we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll dismantle. We'll destroy the heavy industry in the East, yeah. essentially. Yeah, we'll just literally dismantle everything you have. And then we'll be very shocked that uh, you suddenly are in a massive recession. But we don't know where it came from. So it, it, it seems to me from like a layman's perspective, with no real sort of background in economics, part of the crux of the problem is uh, you're, if you're trying to create a, a single unified kind of homogeneous economic force that still has internal trade as a mechanism for accruing wealth, um, it doesn't work if you have large inequalities between the buyers and the sellers who use the same currency. Right, like if if the if the value of the of the transaction uh, is the same currency, but that has a different buying power in one country or the other, you're going to end up um, with some sort of problem, either heightening inequalities or. Uh, well, I mean, it can it, it can sort of work. I mean, the, the the great example is the is the United States. I mean, yeah. essentially, you have fifty. U.S. states mm -hmm. uh, with very different, you know, California is what the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world, and Mississippi is I don't know somewhere in the level of Rwanda, I guess. Um, <laughs> but they're all bound into into like one thing, and the thing that makes it go is that they have one currency and one government. So, like California at the federal level pays a brick ton more taxes than it gets back from the federal government, um, and and some of those go to uh, uh, paying Mississippi to build highways and, I don't know, uh, yeah, that's uh, what I was teaching people at. not to eat sticks. It's it's that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that's what I was getting at, because if you want someone, uh, if, if, if you're in Germany and you want someone in Italy to buy your stuff, you're not going to, to, to sell it to them if Italy doesn't have enough purchasing power. So you need some kind of mechanism to just kind of balance out the different regional or different national uh, levels of wealth because yeah, you, you, it, it you benefits. Need, you need wealth I mean, transfers. That's what yeah. You need. So, so if we're going to do like a very basic domestic, you know, sort of high street analogy, it goes back to this old, um, this old domestic economy problem of the local business actually um, can sell more when people in the sort of lowest rungs, right? The, the poorest people in society have more purchasing power because they're going to go out and they're going to spend their money on the high street. So the yeah. easiest way to stimulate a domestic economy is to simply give money to the poorest people. So like a universal basic, yeah. So it's a support principle, right? Make yeah. cars that your own employees can afford. 
So you apply that same idea to something like the EU and what you have to have, it seems to me, is a very large program of transferring wealth, like you said, from the wealthier countries to the poorer ones. But this doesn't seem to be happening. Am I right? Well, we don't have, we don't have wealth transfer between countries, I think, but Europe is very much trying to uh, be a community of regions, I think they call it. Mm -hmm. And there there are some wealth transfers on, on sort of that regional level, but... Yeah, but that's, that's not really a formal EU thing. There is some, like, that's more an inter-country agreement, but like, you're exactly right. The, the, the fundamental problem is like, there is no, like with the US, there's just one political entity and one uh, a monetary entity so they do this transfer business what we have is this sort of crucial disconnect between the, the monetary entity and the political entity um, and that means that there that the you would have to get everybody to agree to to a poli unify politically and b to these wealth transfers uh, and these wealth transfers would essentially in particular mean and this is where we get into sort of a whole political and social cultural fucking nightmare which is what you saw in 2008 10 13 and now again where um the the countries that that had that are big economies so germany and sort of the germany the netherlands a couple of other places the, the, net, the um, net payers at least the net payers you know they don't they would see this as okay but this means we take on um the the debts and like the you know the lazy uh, grasshoppers uh of southern europe and like we don't want to mm. pay for which especially like german voters they would view this <laughs> as they are paying for lazy southern europeans not to work let, and sleep during lunchtime let, let me put it let me put it in the words of the former dutch finance ministers which was that um the the southern europeans uh they spent all their money on uh, what was it? Al alcohol? Booze and women. And women, yes. There, yeah. there we go. And yeah. That was a literal quote from the Dutch That's, finance minister yes. during the Greek crisis. Yeah. Which is something to be uh, deeply ashamed of. Yeah, uh, yeah. For God knows I am. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so they, they, there's a, that fundamental discord. And I think um, maybe maybe it helps like if we move to what sort of happened during the euro crisis mm -hmm. in greece because like that you can see it play out in in real time uh uh there i think maybe maybe should we move on there marino do you think yeah i think uh, yeah maybe, maybe, yeah yeah i think we've got let's let's set the scene right so so pre-crisis what's the situation we have a eurozone that is largely centered around uh countries like germany um leading the decisions, leading the sort of um, economic definition, right? What kind of economy we have. And things are going well enough up until when? What happens? Well, you know, the zero's been around now uh, physically for a couple of years. Uh, hasn't had any major crises yet. So everybody thinks, you know, that we're still in end of history mode. In that sense, uh, Greece... Yeah, everybody sort of knows that maybe their books are a little too good to maybe be true. Maybe there's a problem. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Maybe maybe it's all a little too good to be true. But hey, they had the Olympics and wasn't that fun. And uh, then suddenly the whole global economy goes tits up because of yeah. uh, because of uh, people in the United States being yeah. borrowed so the, lots of money the, that they can't the, pay back. 
Yeah, so roughly, very roughly what happens, like it's a sort of a slow roll through the uh, uh, transition from uh, the American crisis to uh, the Euro crisis uh, for a bunch of reasons, some of which like I'll, ha I'll have to gloss over because like, we could be here for hours otherwise. Um, but essentially what happens is that um, by this time, a lot of the European big banks and Deutsche Bank is, a, is an important name that will come up a bunch of times, uh, which is the biggest German bank, um, are very much integrated into the US financial system. And they do that in two ways. The first one is just like, they all get the ideas in their heads in, in the early to, early to mid 2000s that they wanna be big dick players on Wall Street, right? This is just a fucking ego trip. They want to have a big office. They want to earn the mega millions that the guys on Wall Street do. They want to have a big Wall Street presence. Um, so they buy up uh, all these banks and investment banks on Wall Street and sort of establish themselves as players over there. Yeah. And with buying and all those... Mind, they don't have experience with this, right? They're, like even Deutsche Bank was before they had the whole, before they had the whole investment bank thing, they were not... Uh, like they were not a particularly large bank and they were not no they were just a, they were I mean they were at all they were big but they were just a high street bank like they really did just you know uh, uh, lend out money to German consumers and German small to very big businesses and you know charge more in interest uh, and, and just made a decent amount of money that way like they were very traditional bank yes um, and yeah, as you say, so they have very little experience, but they just all, you know, it's the 2000s, it's the internet bubble, it's everything, you know, it's it's hyper neoliberalism. They just want to be big dicks and they just want to play on Wall Street. And the other thing they do whilst they're on Wall Street is um, they take advantage of the fact that it's really cheap for them to to borrow money short term in dollars and then rent it and then loan it out long term, especially in the shape of mortgages in Europe. Um, so they, they borrow a bunch of money short term on Wall Street with the idea that they can always just renew the loan. Um, and then they pay it and then they use that money, which is especially happens a lot in Spain and Portugal and Ireland, is uh, they use that money to like give people 30 year mortgages. Yeah, and this was all done on the expectation that like I can always renew my short term loans on Wall Street tomorrow. Like that, that party will never, ever, ever end. Yeah. What could possibly Narrator, the party ended. <laughs> and, and the other <laughs> thing is that uh, because the euro is new, I think people don't really know, uh, they, they, don't, you know they don't really know what it all means. For some reason, every country's uh, bond interest rates have gone massively down. Like somehow Greece is borrowing at roughly the rate of Germany. So as, as if it's the same country and not what we said before, that actually these are different countries and they have their own central banks issuing their own bonds for their own economies. But nobody knew yet what would happen if, uh, you know, if Greece wouldn't be able to pay these bonds. Like Germany's going to help them, right? Because they're a currency union. So I should price this to the risk of Germany, which is low, right? Right? Yeah. So the whole thing, so the whole, the US financial markets completely blow up. Um, then, of course, two things happen. Most of the big European banks find out that, you know, all these cool big dick assets they bought on Wall Street were actually, you know, filled with scorpions, spiders and giant, you know, ticking time bombs uh, of a variety of lethal species. And this sort of 
um, these short-term loans that they were using to give out mortgage in Europe, they dry up. So there's a huge crisis inside the European banking system. They've completely run out of money. And like, what you also have to know is that at this point, um, Deutsche Bank, in the total valuation of all its assets, like if you pile everything that Deutsche Bank uh, has outstanding in loans, has on its book as asset, has out in stocks, in these weird derivative contracts, if you pile the whole thing up, they are the same size as the German state. And that's German, and that's one bank in Germany. France is the same story, the Netherlands is the same story, Spain, Italy, Greece, I'm not so sure. Iceland, like for example, Iceland, the big four banks in Iceland have more sort of assets and, and everything bundled together than like 10 times the population of the island. Yeah, and Iceland so is what an it mean- excellent case study because they let yeah, their yeah. fail. So yeah, but Iceland is like it, it, I, let's not get into Iceland as a, as a, as a thing. Um, but uh, so what happens is like the, the all the banking sector of Europe essentially goes to the ECB and goes to the national government and says, we have a gigantic problem. And like, if you don't finance us right now, and we do mean right now, then there is literally a chance that tomorrow the ATMs are empty. Like it was at that pitch of crisis. Like that's not a that's not an uh, an exaggeration. That's really how deeply screwed the thing was because if Deutsche falls then like Germany would have to spend its entire GDP of one year just to keep the bank going and that obviously a the German people would not have accepted it and be like even how would you how would you do that you know financially so you have this huge crisis and what then happens is the same thing that happens um, in the United States and also in the UK which is um, the different governments step in they guarantee up gigantic amount um, of these banks loans they supply them with new capital and all of that money is financed through new borrowing because the state and the central bank do what they do which is be the lender of last resort so they clean up these banks but now what you have is a gigantic amount of of debts and bad assets and trash now that has essentially been transferred from the asset sheet of Deutsche Bank onto uh, the asset sheet of the German state and the Dutch state and the French state and the Italian state and the, and the Spanish state. Yeah, sometimes very literally, like in the Netherlands, one bank was outright nationalized, but not in the way that you might think like, oh, this is good. You know, we should definitely nationalize the banks. No, it was still sort of seen as its own corporation. And then a former finance minister was put in charge of it. And he was supposed to make it all healthy again. A large part of that was, like uh, Rob was just saying, transferring bad assets onto the balance sheet of the state and off of the bank. And then once it was deemed uh, financially fit again, it was immediately privatized. And then that was sold to the Dutch taxpayer as, look, we put a bunch of money in, but we got more money back in the end. And so- Well, and we lost a whole bunch of money as well on it. Like, I mean, this is what happened to, um, in the UK, uh, Elijah, if you remember, you had um, RBS, right? Mm -hmm. That was part nationalized and like a whole bunch of money went in and then they sold all the shares and made a massive loss. Yeah, this is the- the, the kind of standard neoliberal operating play where you yeah. you turn uh, private debt, private corporation debt, so debts, debts that have been accrued by private companies and corporations, uh, and you turn it into public debt so that the money-making apparatus can continue to go on unharmed and doesn't have to be held accountable for its fuck-ups. 
Yeah, but at the same time, you keep having all these rules where you basically do not allow the public entities, the states themselves, to issue any debt. So the only yeah. way the state is allowed to take on debt is by is by taking it off of these massive private enterprises that have failed repeatedly. Yeah, and then the next thing that happens in this sort of um, play is that. Uh, now all these banks have, I mean, they're not prepared. Like a bunch of them are still in very deep shit. And, you know, in the case of Deutsche Bank in particular, there is pretty strong evidence to suggest that like they are actually still bankrupt as fuck. And, and just they are an undead weirdo bank that is not allowed to die for political reasons. But broadly speaking, what happens is that now all this private debt has become public debt. And oh my God, would you look at the size of the debt to GDP ratio? And, you know, we're way beyond the 60% that the, the European Union allows, that the European, uh, that the, the rules of the Eurozone allow. Um, and now we have to do austerity to cut it back. This is, Elijah, a very familiar story, I yes. think, to people in the, in the UK. This is so. The crisis up to now seems to me, uh, sort of hearing this, to be something that happens locally in in the individual member states. Their their national banks go into massive debt, and then the national governments acquire that debt instead. So where does the euro come into this? What's the problem with the euro? All right. So this is where we turn to to, to Greece because that's where we said we'd start <laughs> we'd start the story. But again, nothing in Europe is ever simple. So we have to spend twenty minutes setting up mm-hmm. the the punchline. Um, so what happens? This is about oh god, when is this? This is two thousand eleven. I want to say or two thousand thirteen. Moran, I, I, I forget. I, I want to say eleven um, as well. At 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 some point uh, in two thousand eleven, uh, there's a new Greek government. Um, and it comes in and it makes a, you know, and it's a very neoliberal government. Um, and they come in and they, they honestly, well, honestly, question mark, but whatever, like they are more forthright um, about the size of the, the Greek debt and the amount of debt the states, Greek state and the Greek successive Greek governments have accrued. Um, and they say, oh, by the way, it's not the six or seven percent of G. It's not uh, like the, the payments we have to make every year are not like six percent of GDP, which was sort of iffy, but OK. But it's actually more like 13 percent of our GDP. We have to pay every year in interest rates because like we made all these weird deals with the help of Goldman Sachs. And like we are in a giant financial shit show. Yeah. And because the European econ- the US economy has gone to shit, the European economy is now going to shit. Um, we need about 50 billion uh, euros uh, because we can't repay our debts. And if we repay, can't repay our debts, we have to default. And nobody knows how to do that within the context of the European Union. Yeah, and this creates a, this creates a spiral, right? Because normally the idea would be, okay, uh, the Greek government needs 50 billion euros. So the Greek government can write out bonds for 50 billion euros. Except now they've just said uh, how bad of a shape they're in. So if I am an investor and I want to buy these bonds, then I want premium returns on it. So I'm only going to be willing to lend the Greek government my money for uh, quite a high percentage of interest uh, to the point where the interest will then become so high that it will eat up basically the the Greek state's uh, money, right? And they can't print their own money because they're in the euro. So yeah, because they they gave all the printing presses to the Germans and the Germans for many reasons, some to do with history, some to do with 
the way they have organized their economy, some to do with just fucking weirdo mass psychology. They don't do debt and they definitely don't do money printing ever. Yeah, so the Greek government basically threatens to start spiraling down uh, into an eventual bankruptcy, except where, you know, you have Argentina, for example, which declared bankruptcy in, I want to say 2001, and then probably a couple more times after that. People sort of know what that looks like. And while there's all kinds of nasty side effects to that, like things can keep going on, right? But if Greece does it, nobody knows what it looks like. And can things really keep going on? And it definitely means that all the banks that have invested in Greece, which is all the major European banks, that's your Societe Generale, that's your Deutsche Bank, that's your, uh, that's your uh, Italian banks, that's your Dutch banks, it's everything, right? They're all going to take a haircut if the Greek state defaults on their debts and they're all leveraged up to their eyeballs so if they take a haircut if they if they take a haircut they're done yeah yeah because what we've just been talking about with how like fragile all the euro banks are the big euro banks if greece goes and they don't get that money then deutsche bank goes and uh credit lyonnais goes and ing in the netherlands goes and then once those three go you essentially the the european banking system as you know it completely explodes and it would it would i don't know i don't know what would have happened then but it would have been spectacular in a really horrendous way okay so and and like a big part of the scary thing there is that nobody knows what would have happened like still not it's yeah so to summarize if i've got this right um the level of debt in greece is so profound that they need a massive um leveraging of currency a massive influx of spending and new currency to either borrow their their way out of it or to uh spend their way out of it but because of the way the euro is organized and defined this is not possible well normally as a a state right if you're so far if you're so far up in debt that you basically cannot make your interest payments what you would do is you would inflate your way out of it yeah and 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 they can't do that because yeah, and of, also like and and if they were an independent state what they would do um with their own currencies they would go to their lenders and say look we need to renegotiate the terms of this debt like we're still we're willing to repay it but we have to do it at a lower interest over a longer period of time because if we if you don't give me better terms either i will do massive inflation like moran just said or i would just stop paying you know, and then you're fucked. Yeah, and this, However, is, and this is also something they're not able to do because uh, if Greece would be allowed to do that, then then apparently that's something that can happen within the Eurozone and then that undermines... And then Italy does it and then Spain does it and then that puts... Essentially, the biggest thing like you have to remember is like while the front face of this crisis was Greece, the real face of the crisis where everything really ten- threatened to drop the shit was these gigantic private banks um, in the Northern European core. So the German banks, the Dutch banks, the French banks, those three in particular were so exposed to like any mild tremor in Greek Greek debt or Italian debt or Spain debt, that any mild tremor in those would have blown them up in 24 to 48 mm-hmm. hours. And that would have gone, as we've been saying, God knows what would have happened then. Yeah. And the Greeks- I, I think it's also really important to keep in mind that virtually everything that applies to, to the Greek state here is equally true for the Italian state, 
but the Italian state was not forced to go through some of the horrendous austerity that Greece was forced to go through because... Well, they had some pretty bad shit of their own. Uh, Absolutely horrible stuff, but it was not on the level of Greece. But not as bad as Greece, no. And the reason for that was that uh, Italy is is basically seen as core to the European project. Uh, It's one of the, you know, I think Italy is the sixth largest economy in the world. Uh, And yeah, they, they basically are too powerful to do to what we did to Greece. But this kind of um, debt uh, solving methods that Greece wasn't able to do because of its Euro membership, this is something that could have been done or was done by an EU country that uses corner or pounds or yeah. Yeah, I mean, the UK did some fairly insane things of its own, specifically the austerity stuff on their... <laughs> yeah, the, the, UK, on their, the UK committed to the austerity... Like, uh, the UK essentially did what Greece did, but voluntarily. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's like, part of the core. Greece was forced into it, uh, kicking and screaming. The UK uh, basically looked at that and said, oh yeah, we'll have some. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll just do that. Um, so essentially, like the, the Greeks can't inflate their way out of the debt because they don't have any more printing presses. They can't renegotiate with the creditors because the creditors are essentially have the governments of Germany and France in their back pocket, so they will never back down. Um, they can't go bankrupt because that's not an option because you're in the Eurozone uh, and they can't do anything. So the one thing that is left for the Greek state to do uh, is austerity and not like not a little austerity but like turbo gigantic austerity and you know like it was really bad in the uk and and i think we all know that but like in greece it was way worse i mean and it still is people forget the second part of what austerity actually should be it's it's cutting spending and raising taxes right you're trying to minimize expenditure and increase your income the uk doesn't really raise taxes they just cut spending um, yeah, because well, in the UK, austerity to me seems to be not really for economic purposes, but more of an ideological thing. So it's it's worse than that, right? Because let's say uh, the the port of Piraeus, which is uh, you know even historically a massively famous port, it's the largest port in in, in Greece. It's basically the port of Athens, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was government property, and you would think that a such, such important infrastructure might be a, a revenue stream for the Greek government, so that might be a, a good thing for them to own. Yeah. Uh, so as part of the austerity, they had to sell that. You know, they had to sell it because that would be a quick cash injection. Oh, God. And, uh, and that's how it works, right? Uh. Let's privatize it all, and we'll, we'll strip out the couple from yeah. the walls. And uh, that'll solve that problem. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. and it was not just it was not just Piraeus and the port. It was um, whole islands. It was half the military equipment. It was oh, uh, airfields. Um, you know, and that's just the stuff they sold. And this then the other the, side of it was the government expenditure, which is cut pensions to the bone, cut all government expansion ex- expenses except for loan payments. There completely was, to the bone. There was serious talks. As well, as, um, okay, no, serious is too strong, but there was semi-serious uh, consideration for actually annexing certain islands to Germany as payment. <laughs> which, I mean, given the whole history between Greece and Germany, didn't go over so well. Yeah. And what you also get is because now, uh, you know, now everything is really going to shit and it's going very badly. And then what happens is, is, um, and the the Greeks still need, they need immediate cash to pay back loans that are uh, uh, wrapping up or they have payments due. Like they need cash right now. 
So what happens is that um, uh, the European, the, a combination of the the the, um, the eurozone, the European Union, and the IMF essentially say, okay, we together will pool money to give you this cash right now. But in exchange for that, like you pretty much have to surrender all financial control of your country uh, to your debtors, which we will represent. And that's what's called the the troika. I don't know, maybe Elijah, that's a term you've heard of. I've heard of that, yes. I wasn't aware of exactly what it was. Um, Yeah, and that's the troika means the three institutions. And they essentially, like they fly into Athens and no joke, like they take over three or four floors of the Greek finance ministry and just, they just, do a, f- a, a fire sale like they've we've just been discussing they literally go huh that port how much can we get for that right now in the middle of a crisis so the asset is gigantically under undervalued and and, and this is by the way right if, if um, where does this playbook come from eastern europe uh, eastern, eastern germany toy hunt same fucking thing i mean the the analogy for this kind of austerity stuff right um we like to complain a lot about how your average voter seems to think the national economy is run like a credit card, right? Like a household economy. Um, yeah. But if but we can extrapolate on that and say this is your credit card bill is too big. You got to cut some spending in you know in your household. So you sell your car, but now you can't go to work anymore. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're, we're actively undermining our revenue streams. Like we'll fuck revenue streams. We just need a cash injection. We'll just bring everything to the pawn shop. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, and obviously, what 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 happens and what keeps happening is the entirely predictable thing, which is um, the Greek government sells more asset, cuts more pensions, things go, you know, okay. uh, go progressively wrong, and that's because you know mm-hmm. because they have no more assets, so there's no more taxes, and because without the taxes, they can't pay back even more debt, so they have to get another loan. You know, it's it's. I do want to just quickly about Greece. Yeah, uh, go on, sorry. Yeah, I, I, I have an idea that my mic isn't always entirely picking everything up. But yeah, what you also start seeing in Greece at that point is uh, people basically recognizing that the government's not working for them anymore, uh, even like not even to the extent that it ever was. And um, like uh, at the time, I remember uh, some hospitals started being uh, basically worker run. Um, there were neighborhoods where people would help their neighbors uh, to basically, if the power company would come to try to cut them off, and a lot of these power companies were also partially state-owned, I believe, uh, they would basically physically prevent that from happening. Or if it did get happen, if, or if it did happen, then your, you know, your your neighbor who was an electrician or whatever would which would turn you back on, and uh, like all this kind of stuff where the Greeks were basically fed up with their government and it was sort of a low. Uh, like it wasn't a revolt, but it was sort of a tax revolt, I guess, in a sense. Okay. Well, here's what I'm missing. And maybe this is obvious to the listeners, but um, it seems to So the original crisis comes from the US and then it hits the national domestic banks, right? The state banks like Deutsche Bank and the Italian banks and the French banks, whatever. Um, does this also hit the Greek banks directly or is Greece oh, yeah. only... Or, just, so, yeah, yeah. Just, just real quick, yeah. It, it, even though the name is Deutsche Bank, but Deutsche Bank is not a state bank. Deutsche Bank mm. is just a private... Deutsche Bank is a big multinational yeah, private, private, private corporation, which, like, for example, one of the major shareholders of Deutsche Bank right now is the, uh, the emir of... Um, of uh, what is it? Which which one? one of the Gulf states? One of the Gulf states, yeah, exactly. yeah. But I mean, but this is essentially like they are private. But this is in the same sense that like um, HSBC and RBS and the British mega banks, like yes, they're private. 
but they have a lot of buddies uh, inside the government and you know they're sometimes outright linked to political parties yeah, yeah. and that kind of yes, stuff yes, all yes. i meant was as a, like i said state banks i should have said domestic as opposed to being like a yeah. european body mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so it's the domestic banks that get hit directly and greece is hit directly as well it's not hit as a result of being in the euro what happens the euro membership of greece makes it worse for them but it doesn't cause the debt directly what i'm trying to place is the is the actual causal relationship between the crisis and the euro i'm not trying to do like a devil's advocate thing but but what's the so and then in trying to resolve the debt the euro makes it worse as well because they're tied to this larger infrastructure but it seems to me from what i've heard so far is that the mechanism of the euro and the relationship could have been weaponized and could be moved in a positive way to alleviate that and it's only not happening because of specific policy choices among a handful of member states in the north is that so, so, sort of there uh so greece had on the one side uh they have basically they cook their books to be able to join to join the euro right mm -hmm. and then once that came out that there was a market shock because investors didn't expect to have been fooled even though <laughs> really they, they should, yeah, they should have. The, the market is efficient and can never be fooled you'd be surprised yeah so and then after that came out greece got into trouble and they did not have as a state the usual tools that a state has to deal with that kind of trouble because they were in the euro And you're okay. absolutely right. At that point, the Eurozone, as one, could have stood up and said, one of our members is in trouble. Uh, but, you know, we, we, are a, uh, we are almost an entire continent worth of economic power. We're one of the most developed continents, one of the most advanced economies. We will fix this. We're, we're going to step in, right? But, but, but there also, there was a lot of fear of maybe we can do this to, with Greece, But if we do this with Greece, you know, moral hazard, next is going to be Italy and Spain and Portugal and Ireland, and it's going to be too much. Yes. So, so what I'm looking for is that disconnect between the euro as like a purely functional tool and mechanism and the political and social aspects of, of policy that make those determinations that end up sort of where we are today. Because if uh, a lot of people make arguments about the euro being bad or good, and, and there's a lot of like moral judgments that get tossed in with economic and political ones, mm -hmm. I, I personally don't find that helpful. I, I think if the euro can be leveraged in a positive way, then that's not, then the, the, the bad ways it has been leveraged aren't arguments against the euro itself necessarily, they're arguments against policy and politics. So yeah. No. The the design. The, the pro main problem is that the design of the euro is a hideous, half finished botch job. Are you now talking about the euro or the European Union? <laughs> Both, but <laughs> the euro especially. Yeah, but again, that's sort of by design, right? Because if you if you want to properly design euro, you need a transfer union. If you're going to have a transfer union, really, what you need is a political body that is in charge of the entire area between which you're going to be having transfers, right? So what you really need is a federal government. So and like a United yeah, States you need a federal Europe, Europe. Or yes. even or even better, an ESSR. Sure. <laughs> sure. That would work. Okay, so that was 2008. What's happening now? What's the what's the worry? What's well, the that was 2011 to 13. Right. Okay. Um, and then I, I think we'll skip the whole 
very briefly, but like we do, yeah, I, we've been going for over an hour, so we won't go on forever. Um, but very briefly, what happened was that um, Syriza, uh, you remember Alexis Tsipras and Yanis Varoufakis came into power mm-hmm. and they expressly rejected this business that the European Union and the Eurozone uh, was forcing them into, which was mega austerity sale of state assets with everything just getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the briefest of terms, what happened was that the Germans and the Dutch and, and sort of the northern countries did not agree to that, to put it mildly, mm-hmm. um, and just decided and just literally just decided to torture the economy to death. And I, think, um, I think the main issue there, I think the reason they failed, the, the, the reason they failed was, was timing, right? I think if the same threat had been made from the start, I don't think, yeah, the, it would have I don't worked. think the European Union or the Eurozone could have done anything about it. But they got a couple of years in which they could bail out their own banks, right? And basically make sure that they could contain Greece and let Greece fail without contagion. And then once those threats started coming, when Syriza got in power, they were in a position where they could say, well, go on. All right, okay, so, so that's yeah. sort of, that's, that, that's like, so the Greek, to sort of go back to the bigger thing, like if you look at the Greek crisis, you see, all the design flaws and all the hideousness of the of the European of of the eurozone as a construct. It's an unwieldy thing that has no central authority. It's essentially run by Germans with a fear of in, with not a fear but like a mental phobia of inflation. Um, it's real decisions are made politically but in a bad and disjointed way um it has no substantive measure for saving itself and it doesn't allow countries to save themselves without the agreement of everybody else in the Euro- in the eurozone mm-hmm. so it's this just- incredibly weird combination and also if you put too much pressure on it like if you were to break the eurozone or if there's a big problem inside the eurozone the chance that it breaks up the european union as a construct at the same time is very high yeah so you have this ramshackle piece of shit that is not very good for pretty much most citizens um except like big corporations and big exporters like <coughs> germany um and that just does it and that is not answerable in any sense of the way uh, to the demands of its own citizens. Yeah, there's very little democratic oversight over the euro part, uh, over the euro part of the, of the equation. And just two quick comments there. I think the the German the German fear specifically isn't even inflation, but hyperinflation, which is very weird to me because inflation does not cause hyperinflation, never has. Um, so to me, it's just completely misguided. And um, the second comment I had there was, uh, it slipped my mind. So yeah. okay, right. So <laughs> briefly, what's the worry now? What's 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 liable to cause some stress? All right. In, so in right now, result? it's r- right now, and we promised this uh, way back in the beginning for anybody who's still fucking listening to this technocratic nightmare that is the euro. Um, <laughs> we hope we're at least somewhat entertaining, if not informative. Um, so right now, essentially, what we're back to is something that resembles uh, the Greek crisis, but in different terminology and with different affectation. So right now what we're seeing is the uh, is the Corona crisis. Uh, like the UK, uh, most of Europe is on lockdown. A lot of countries um, are very badly affected. Spain and Italy, you will have seen in the news that they've been really badly hit and like their lockdowns are way more severe than the one in the UK currently is, uh, which means their economy 
economic activities dying and also like in a specific way that um, Spain and Italy traditionally rely on a lot of um, domestic spending and consumption uh, uh, just on a day-to-day basis. Um, they're less reliant on big exports of, of BMWs like Germany is. Uh, so they're being hit extremely hard um, by this crisis. And um, naturally, they turned to their partners in the Eurozone and said, look, everybody, there is a giant, giant problem here. We need like we need a cash injection. We need money to be printed, like, not in three months with conditions. We need... You know the money printers have to go on because otherwise, like we can't feed our citizens, and shit's going to hit the fan in a massive way. Oh yeah, and specifically, and, right with Greece, the one of the arguments against uh, you know doing exactly those sort of things to help Greece was that it was an asymmetric shock. Right, in other words, this is a problem that is caused by Greece. It's your problem. Uh, we're not going to make it our problem. But this, with you know, Corona, COVID, whatever, it's it's very clearly a symmetric shock. Everybody's having the same problem, so why not why not band together and find a solution that we can all benefit from? Which was what they had said, right? They had said, like, no, this this is definitely something we can do in the case of a symmetric shock. Well, now here you have one, and right away the usual suspects are lining up to shout that absolutely not, we're not so going to do anything. What's the like printing money? What's the ideal solution then for the Corona crisis? Printing money. Literally that. In the short term, yes. I mean, it's. I mean, the the UK is doing this, right? And the US is doing it to an even more vast extent. And and the problem is, you need to not just um, like print money, but because Italy and Spain and and a lot of other countries still have really super high debt loads, like you can't just ask them to uh, to do it on their own dime. So you need. You know, we you need what you need is is the thing that we all need. What you need is solidarity. Um, for essentially, what you need is a is a is a common debt instrument that Europe or the European Union or the eurozone gives out, which we would call a Corona bond or a Euro bond um, that is underwritten by the European Central Bank, and through that, by the strength of all the economies from Germany to Greece to Romania to Spain, um, and that would be one common debt instrument. Everybody right now is looking for safe assets. So like you would be able to shift that shit in financial markets for a very low price in under a second. Like it would sell unbelievably well right now yeah. because it would be backed by the full power of the, the Eurozone or the European Union as a yeah, whole. If you put your money into this, you'd be, giving, you'd be lending your money not to a member state, but to the European Union or to, to the Eurozone at least, the Eurozone as a whole. And if you would think that you would not get your money back, you'd basically be betting that the that the euro would cease to exist, or the eurozone would cease to exist, or would default on its debts. Which, especially especially if they would take a move like this, would be very unlikely. Yeah, it's it's essentially like you would it it would be the, roughly the equivalent of betting that the United States stops paying the interest on its treasuries. Like once that happened, the world is essentially ending. So. That's what you need, but now we come back to what screwed up the the eurozone uh, and the euro crisis in 2011 to 2013 is that the northern economies once again led again, and we're very sorry to say this by the Dutch um, have said no, we're not doing it uh, unless 
we do it on a very short term and there should be giant conditions attached for post-corona that you get your economies in order, by which they mean more privatization, less labor rules, lower wages, all that good stuff. I think um, very specifically just today, and let me just really quickly look this up so I get it right, uh, because it's just just the most disgusting thing. Um, Hold on, I have to... This. No, this whole thing is, is it, I mean, this whole thing is just dis- disgusting top to yeah, bottom no, and no, essentially the whole thing is disgusting, but the, the Dutch, the Dutch finance minister was once again leading the charge, basically being used as the attack dog of Germany, which was quietly having his back, but not, you know, mm-hmm. saying the quiet part out loud the whole time. And they said, no, we can, we can get you money for the, uh, for dealing with the health crisis. But then for the rebuilding of your economy afterwards, that's a separate issue. So I don't know how that is a separate issue, but it's a separate issue. And if you want money for that, then uh, you're going to have to do uh, do it with the normal preconditions. Okay. And um, so today, uh, in, I think Portuguese news, uh, some of those preconditions have become very clear, which is that the EU is perfectly willing to, to borrow uh, or to give Portugal some money or, or yeah, borrow money to Portugal. But uh, they have four. Uh, they have four comments that they want to make, and this is sort of the language that you see in the EU, right? When they have four comments, what they mean is they want four things that you are going to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that they have noticed about Portugal is that the uh, the public uh, the public sector wages are rather high. So maybe do something about that. Uh, your pension your pension uh, costs are rather high. So maybe do something about pensions. Um, and this is this is the worst one in my, right now. Like this is from today. Uh, your healthcare expenses, Portugal, they're they're rather high. Could you uh, could you do something about that? Right. Yeah. And uh, the fourth one is that they need to uh, ensure greater stability, uh, greater stability in the financial sector. So these are the these are concretely the types of preconditions that the that the Dutch finance minister and the and the German uh, government does not want to go without. Right. Okay. Portugal will give you money during this global pandemic, which is, in the words of Merkel, right, the biggest crisis since the Second World War. But we want you to cut your healthcare spending. That is absurd. Um, so the problems with solving this current crisis seem to be the same ones that we yeah. came across in the in 2011, 2013. So I guess we can we can probably move into the last question then. Like wh- what? can be done what should be done what is feasible and like on the spectrum on the spectrum from ideal to you know uh, realpolitik i mean it's it's such a problem and like as as people who occasionally listen to this podcast may know i i work in brussels it's like i've seen these people up close for too long including the european parliament to like have any faith whatsoever in their ability to run a democratic government but without a f- fully federal Europe um, that is willing to sort of uh, uh, do wealth transfers from one country to another, mm-hmm. um, the euro is doomed. And and yeah. we're going to like patch this thing up once again. But like it's already held together with spit and bailing wire and we may survive this crisis and we may survive one more. But left or right, one day this sucker is going to blow and it's going to blow because very correctly, Probably the Italians, but maybe even maybe even the Spanish by now will just say this shit is no longer the worth like mm-hmm. the reward is no longer the worth the price we pay for it, and we are out. 
get fucked. And we're gonna see uh, we're gonna see fascist parties win elections in major European countries. Uh, yeah. when, when when you have on the one hand a, a Europe that says to Italy like, oh, you're doing really bad, but you know, good luck with that. Whereas at the same time, plane loads of of medical uh, uh, equipment and doctors are arriving from China and Russia, right? Which purely political move, absolutely. Um, that you know, that's just uh, how how can the right wing parties not do incredibly well, like the Eurosceptic far right? Mm-hmm. It's it's the, the, their arguments write themselves. They don't they don't have to campaign. They, they they just have to point to what has just happened, right? There's nothing you can do to argue against this. Yeah. So um, the liberal argument might be we need further integration. But as a liberal argument, it wouldn't be the right kind of integration. It, w- it would be a sort of, you know, kind of superficial, let's have more votes. Let's have, let's expand the remit of the European Parliament somewhat. It goes against the liberal propaganda though, right? Because the, the, yeah. the moral arguments you were alluding to earlier, the, um, that's what we've been fed here. In, mm-hmm. in, for example, in the Netherlands, uh, we've been told all about lazy Greeks, right? And lazy Italians and, oh, well, it's their fault that things are, are shoddy. So you cannot now to a Dutch voter say, oh, but, you know, we'll, we'll go and have a we'll have a common debt instrument with those people and you'll be on the hook for their debts. Right. Because those same Dutch people have have had their own austerity measures that they've had to take um, to to deal with those bad banks that the Dutch state nationalized. And and even though we didn't suffer nearly as much as the Greeks or, or even the Italians, uh there's no, there's no real we and them, you know, I don't think it's helpful to think about it as Dutch and Italians. It's very much a, uh, you know, it's, it's a class war thing. Yeah. And, and, and in this class war, like many other class wars, the ruling class by which we mean capital has been extremely effective in turning, uh, the Dutch working class against the Greek working class, yes. against the Spanish working class. And, you know, the, the, if you were to reverse those conditions now, it would also mean that a lot of the ruling coalitions, in especially in the northern governments, would have to sort of de facto admit that, A, all that austerity we did in 2010 to 2015, mm-hmm. roughly speaking, was not necessary. But B, we have literally been lying to you about the causes of these crises. And, and the, the so it would, you know, it would create it would kick them out of office, which, you know, I think we were seeing in the last few days what happens when entrenched elites in parties, uh, you know, fear that they may lose their cushy jobs. Um, yeah. yeah. So there's two things. I mean, back when Italy seemed to be the only European country really having a, a crisis with COVID-19, I do remember seeing a lot of editorials from German papers and some, you know, some sort of Northern European papers. Uh, it's because Italians are unclean or they all live with their moms and they kiss them you on the have, mouth with tongue every day. You should have, like, uh, here in the Netherlands, actually, the, the, the south of the Netherlands, the province that I'm in, is the, is the, the worst hit part of the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the newspapers writing about uh, when it first started here, comparing us to, to Italy was just atrocious, right? As if... Italy was basically barely above a, a third most. <laughs> yeah. It was basically a developing country, even though we're talking about like in Italy, the, the heaviest hit region is Lombardy, right? Yeah. Uh, if you look at the um, uh, what's it called, the uh, the development index thing, uh, I, I forget the name now, but 
Lombardy scores a, a 9.7 on its on its healthcare, uh, right? They have a lot of ICU beds and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. They have very very high quality healthcare there. Uh, in the same in the same uh, metric, Brabant, uh, the the province I'm from, scores like I think a 7.7 or a 7.9 or something. We're not even in the same league, right? But but. But if you look at the newspaper writings, it's as if, well, you know, here's the well-developed north, and that's basically, and it's basically it's south of the south of the Alps. It's basically yeah. Africa, right? I mean, it's funny because even within Italy, the crisis was 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 most prevalent in the north rather than the underdeveloped south. Yeah. Um, you know, but so uh, about what to do, I have a I have a suspicion. So there's going to be possibly two different reactions on like a ground level in terms of political activism and what we can do within an electoral framework. And one of them is going to be Euroscepticism and more Brexit type arguments, which are going to miss the actual point completely, but they're going to be popular for the same reasons. Well, and they may actually, you know, in in the case of Italy and, and, and Spain and some other countries, they will have a real point to say, you know the eurozone is terrible like they the, the economic ca- case that they're making is not always wrong yes absolutely you know but like the, like uh, italy for example if you account for all the other conditions it has had roughly speaking zero growth like literally zero flatline since the day it joined the eurozone yeah i mean there's there's a lot of reasons why the Italian economy has uh, a lot of problems, uh, which we're probably not best sorted to talk about just now. Um, but the other sort of approach, I think, uh, is going to connect to things like the DM25 project. And I have a mm-hmm. feeling that some of the movements like what, what Varoufakis is pushing are going to become a lot more important just now. So we know, for example, in the UK very well, we see this all the time, that European elections have some of the lowest turnout. Right. We mm-hmm. we elect a shower of fucking morons because yeah. it's only the cranks and the, and the weirdos who actually care about this stuff. Right. So, so, so you get. And then I have to go and talk to yeah. them. Yeah. Um, so it <laughs> makes it worth it. I have a feeling. That if, <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. I have a feeling that if we were able to create a concerted effort of uh, pan-European leftist solidarity politics in the electoral context, we would actually have some room to take advantage of, right? Um, We get fucking Brexit party MEPs because the only people who care enough about Europe to vote are, yeah, are the Brexit party and the BNP cranks Mm -hmm. Um, because leftists don't really tend to engage with this massive neoliberal construct. But because there's such a low voter turnout, I feel like there is potential for a mobilized mass movement across Europe. And this crisis is the perfect opportunity to really push that narrative that we need to have a level of um, leftist solidarity politics across Europe. Um, so I'd be interested to see where that goes. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm already a, a, a signed up member to, to DM25 and everything. So for mm-hmm. me currently, I would... This is the first time, I think, in a long time we've had a very good moral opportunity or like a very instinctive one to try and, 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 and change the inner structure of the EU because no other crisis beforehand has been so obviously and blatantly everywhere. And yeah. I, I think the way you do it, though, is to appeal back to those first principles, right? State mm-hmm. the EU as, as a political project 
and then and then put the ideals that you want to achieve on, on that. Like, don't do what we just did and get mired in all the nitty gritty details of the European Union functioning mm-hmm. as it does. Oh right God, now. no, no, no! Because I mean, I'm surprised if cares. anybody's still listening. We'll be able to understand you, and uh, it, it's it's just obtuse on purpose, right? It should be it should be a simple enough message to say we need to elect people to the European Parliament who will absolutely push for wealth transfers and for weaponizing the power of the EU to benefit everyone in it. Now, that's an argument that's going to go down like a lead balloon with the wider electorate. But because yeah. voter turnout, because voter turnout for European elections is so low, I think there is definitely space there for us to... Um, use and take advantage of. I think we can do a little bit of entryism, possibly. The the central message has got to be solidarity. And I think you can also talk about some of the the positive things that the EU has achieved, which is, you know, again, uh, we haven't had a war. Nope. And it wasn't very long after the Brexit referendum that I started seeing things about this war with Spain about Gibraltar, right? Like literally yeah. a week after. Yeah. Is- <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is genuinely the longest period of sustained peace in, in Europe. And I think there are really good things. The weird thing about the European Union is it has, I mean, even in a sort of socialist tradition, it has a lot of the the qualities you would like. It's very supernatural. Mm -hmm. It's very tolerant of of different ideas and governments and experiments and people doing what they do and being able to move from place A to place B and, you know, all that stuff. Like, that's... But it's it's trapped in this just neoliberal hellscape um, uh, and and topped off with with the Euro, which is this weird, unfinished zombie monster that's just gonna eat all our brains one day if i could just leave us on like an optimistic note there it seems to me listening to all this that the euro is not inherently a cause of these problems but more of a an ineffective ill thought out mechanism or yeah it it is a function that we have it's poured a lot of gasoline on the fire but it is in the right hands and but that's the big political question of Mm -hmm. when if and question mark is that it could also be the saving tool of this insane project yeah the euro the euro the euro is an accelerant but it could it could cause federalization to become necessary mm-hmm. for the survival of the union in which I, case i think there's that the corona crisis and in the next thing is going to be global warming um oh god yeah because projects uh, yeah. like projects like the european sort of energy sharing thing that are completely necessary for countries with a lot of a lot of renewable options like Scotland or, or uh, uh, Denmark to mm-hmm. share with other countries that, that, that don't have that ability. We, we're going to absolutely need some kind of network of, of, of energy sharing, which is not going to be possible without a unified supernatural entity. And that's something that, that we can weaponize as well. And that's the same discussion that's happening now with the Green Deal, right? But the, the Green Deal is, uh, mm-hmm. is being proposed by, uh, by Tinamons. And um, he's now having, I think, legal issues with, do you even have the authority to do these things? Which is, again, you know, a, a federal government would. And a lot of the proposals are, are really not, they're not bad. They would be good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and yeah. on that note of optimism, I think if we, if I look at, we are exactly at a tight 90. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, I don't know, uh, Elijah, do you feel more informed <laughs> or is I it just, do, I also do you feel just want to start drinking? 
No, I mean, to be honest, my my sort of vague kind of notions about the problems with the euro that I've picked up here and there piecemeal from other sources throughout the years, um, I'm a bit more optimistic about it than I was before because the danger I was worried about is that it, it, it simply cannot inherently, right, by its own design, there's some... Uh, fatal flaw of inception with the idea that can just never work. But from everything I'm hearing, these are all failures of of bank policy and of uh, and of um, uh, federal government policy on a domestic national level rather than an, a, a supranational one. So I'm a little bit more um, optimistic about the future. Possibly, I haven't. You know, maybe I'm being naive here. But instead of this like vague, monstrous problem that just can't be solved, I feel like, well, yeah, we can solve it. We just got to stop doing the stupid neoliberal austerity shit that we've been doing, you know, since Reagan. Uh, yeah, the, the euro so, could be the, the, the dollar of the EU, but, you know, you, you need a... Yeah, you need which, a which was its original course. design. Like that was the whole, the whole idea... Mm-hmm. Uh, when 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 the whole thing was designed, then we'll stop. But like it's sort of to, to put a bow on it. Like when it was designed, a lot of the designers and the people who sort of wrote the documents and created this thing, they admitted that like if we do this now, then the federal thing must come because it follows logically. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know, they, and, they, 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 but then the it's baked into the cake. And yeah. the idea also was one of you know we just had a cold war in which half of Europe was a satellite state of, of the USSR and, and the other half of Europe was basically a vassal state of the United States. And only if we unite, right, kind of like that snake flag in, in the United States, if we want to control our own future, then we got to do it together. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, maybe strange from a Swiss person, but uh, I'm I'm a bit more defensive of, of the EU and the Eurozone than I was an hour and a half ago, which is weird. Not too much, just a little bit, you know, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so just to round things off, uh, Marijn, thank you so much for agreeing to, you know, come on and, and chat with us for like an hour and a half. That's very cool. No problem. Thanks. Uh, yeah. And... <laughs> Uh, thanks to Elijah for staying awake. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. It was. I find it quite interesting and engaging. So I hope the listeners do too. All right, um, and that's us for this for this week. Um, you can follow us at PraxisCast if you're on Twitter. Uh, we now do occasional Twitch streams as well on I think Fridays and Wednesdays. Uh, one of us is doing uh, Disco Elysium. So if that's your bag, Ooh. you should go and listen to that. Um, and you can check out the podcast and the Twitter for when we go on and stuff, which is nice. And we'll be, I don't know when this one's coming out, but we're doing regular episodes as well and covering, of yeah. course, the leaked labor report and we all some, kinds of other jazz. We have some spicy, spicy things coming. We have spicy things. Um, so bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye. bye.